0: Now I want you to reflect with me for a moment on what Satan is doing here with Jesus. Satan is attempting to cast a glamour over Jesus. That's an interesting word isn't it glamour? I uh, I bought a copy of the Oxford English Dictionary while I was still in college. It's the condensed version. It's two volumes that come with a magnifying glass. And um, it's interesting to study what words originally mean. What is the original meaning of glamour according to the Oxford English Dictionary? Magic enchantment, spell, especially in the phrase to cast a glamour over one, a magical or fictitious beauty attaching to any person or object, a delusive or alluring charm a magical or fictitious beauty attaching to any person or object, a delusion or alluring charm. Now, so we don't use that word that way today. We use it in the sense of fashion magazines, uh, making people look glamorous. And uh, I can tell you that if you ever see movie stars without their makeup, they do not look the way they look. And uh, when they're glamorized, But this word is a powerful word. And when I think about it, I'm reminded of the story of David's son who became obsessed with David's daughter, his half-sister. Amnon fell in love with Tamar. Now, it's interesting if we read that passage of scripture. Then Amnon hated, that's the Hebrew word uh, saneh, hated her with very great hatred, and the hatred with which he, had, he hated her was greater than the love, a half, with which he had loved her. And Ammon said to her, Get up and go away. That's a strange story, isn't it? It illustrates something. It illustrates that he loved her. The Hebrew language, unlike Greek, isn't into all kinds of fine definitions for this and that. It doesn't have an elaborate grammar like Greek has. It has two tenses. Completed action and incomplete action. Incomplete action would include present and future. And you have to decide which is which. And its definitions are very basic and simple. Ahav. The Hebrew word for love is what it says. He fell in love with her. And the amazing thing about that is this. People wonder, well, am I in love or not? What's true love? I can't tell you. True love is living out your commitment in the light of God's commandments. The emotion of love is fickle. Here's the amazing thing about glamour. You can have a dream about somebody. And in that dream, you fall in love with this person. And when you wake up, you're affected by that dream. You can see someone and suddenly fall in love with that person. Ahav love. Ahav it. (laughs) That's the actually third person singular of the uh, cow of the word Ahav, which means he had love or he loved (laughs) Ahav. See, it doesn't distinguish. You don't need to worry. You remember the stupid song, when I fall in love, it'll be forever? That's nonsense. That's why scripture tells us to guard our heart. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Ammon fell in love with his half-sister Tamar, and he was obsessed. He was lovesick over Tamar, and the end result is he raped his half-sister. And once he had done what he did... He was totally repulsed by her, by her, revulsed and repulsed. He didn't want to have anything to do with her. And that's, it says he went from being in love to being in hate. And he hated her. He hated her greatly and he threw her out of the house. Isn't that a strange story? It's all because of David's sin and what he sowed as a legacy uh, with his children. Amnon hated her. He had loved her. Guard your heart with all diligence. Now, here is the interesting thing. Satan is able to cast a glamour over every single person in this building, including you and me. Not just about romantic things, but about politics and power. He can make something incredibly desirable for us. And when I think about glamour as sometimes something more than natural, I am reminded of Jack Nicholson's kissing the decomposing body of the corpse in the film The Shining. I remember Sandy and I ate supper at the hotel where, where uh, Stephen King wrote The Shining. And it's the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. That's where he, he, he holed up in a room to write that novel. And that scene, which is blurred there behind you, the character played by Jack Nicholson sees a voluptuous woman. And when he embraces her, suddenly he sees in the mirror what he's embracing is a decomposing corpse. Why is that important? Because when the glamour is gone, you realize that what you've got wasn't worth having. And I submit to you, as we look at this text, the devil took, led him up to a high place, verse 5, Luke 4, 5, and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. What was Satan attempting to do? He was attempting to cast a glamour over the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you see it? How wonderful it is? He showed him in time, in a moment of time, all of the kingdoms of the world. Beyond time that we know it. He shows it to Jesus. Look at this. Isn't this desirable? I remember uh, a preacher who had a sermon entitled "All the Devils Were Apples Have Worms." You know what that's like. Have You ever had bitten into a luscious, crisp, sweet, slightly tart apple, and when you looked down at what you'd bitten out, there was half a worm. All the devil's apples have worms. What I'm saying is that Satan was attempting to cast a glamour over the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll give you all this. And then notice what he says. For it's been given to me. Now what do we have to say about Satan? And I can give it to anyone I want. Hold your hand there and turn to the right to the gospel of John. John chapter 8 John chapter 8 and look at what Jesus says about Satan here and he says pardon me uh, page 1663 and he says let's see right there Starting down there at verse 40. As it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing these things, the things your own father does. What's he saying to them? He's saying to those people, their father was not God. Their father was the devil. Read on down. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now am here. I've not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. Look at verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. Look at the next sentence. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we learn two things about the devil here. He's a murderer, and he's the father of murders, and he's a liar. And the father of lies. So it's very important as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ as he's encountering Satan. Notice he doesn't argue with Satan, he doesn't get into a dispute with Satan. How does he respond to Satan? He simply quotes Scripture. You'll never win an argument with the devil. Jesus didn't argue with the devil. Why? Because when you're arguing with somebody who tells you lies along with truth, there's no point in it. They can spin a yarn better than anything. When you're a truth speaker arguing with a liar, you'll never win. You simply rebut by quoting scripture. And that's what Jesus does to Satan. He says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. But these two things, the devil's a murderer. How is the devil a murderer? When did the devil first commit murder? Anybody got a guess? It was in the Garden of Eden. When he, with craftiness, remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. How Satan is able to transform himself into an angel of light. And Paul says, I fear for you Corinthian Christians that just as Satan deceived Eve, so you'll be deceived from from the gospel and your first loyalty to Christ. So Satan is able to transform himself into appearing to be something he isn't. And as he did that for Eve, as he beguiled her, as she was completely snookered by Satan, she broke God's commandment. And as a result, she seduced her husband, and he listened to his wife rather than being loyal to the Lord. And it was his sin that brought all of the misery that we have. So Satan's murder began in the Garden of Eden when he killed our first parents. How did he kill them? God said, in the day you eat that fruit, dying you will die. That's what he says in Hebrew grammar, meaning you will absolutely die. Did they die? Absolutely they died. How do we know they died? They died that very moment in the garden because they hid from God. They died in their heart of hearts. They died in their consciousness. They died in their will. They died in their emotions. What had once been delightful and wonderful them in a place that was designed for them to be happy forever. It became for them a hell. Because they violated God's commandment and broke his covenant. And from that point on, they're fleeing from God. And they're blame shifting. What a terrible marriage. Everybody's blaming somebody else. It's not mine, it's hers. I've recently been informed that someone blamed his spouse for choosing a Muslim to, uh, to run for the uh, seat in, uh, in Pennsylvania. Hmm. Blame shifting, pointing fingers. It's your fault I'm doing this. It all began there. And they died that day. Their physical death was simply a manifestation of the internal death that happened that day when Satan killed them. But the key thing we want to see is that he is a liar. A liar. And he is a damned liar. And that's very critical to understand. Because Satan is under condemnation. And so what do we know as we see what he says there in Luke chapter 4? And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. For it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. Luke 4, 6. That's a lie. Was it given to him? No. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they had to abandon the place, and Satan simply moved in. He's like a squatter. I live in a place with interesting neighbors. Most of my neighbors are good people who are good neighbors and look out for one another, but there are a number of people there that uh, my friend, uh, who's been here one time with me, uh, refers to as the walking dead. Meaning the meth heads. And the meth heads live out where I live. But they live in abandoned houses, abandoned trailers. They simply move in as a squatter. And that's what Satan did. Do you think that Satan owns this planet? No, he's a squatter. He moved in when there was a vacancy. So it, isn't, it hasn't been given to him. I stole it. And I have the authority to give it to whomever I choose. Oh, do you really? No, nothing happens outside of the sovereign, eternal purpose of our sovereign God. But Satan can cast a glamour. Satan can deceive. Satan can make you think. you got to have this. Turn with me, if you will, back to the left, to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 22, and I want to look at one of Satan's most clever lies. lies. Luke chapter 22, and we're looking here on page 1535. 1535, and we will look at the next slide. Matthew 22, verse 15. Matthew 22, verse 15, page 1535. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you're a man of integrity. (laughs) A flatterer spreads a net for your feet. So the next photograph is uh, the one of Thomas Jefferson's Uh, 1805 inaugural address entitled Wall. Okay. Teacher, he said, we know you are a man of integrity, they said, and that you teach the way of a God in accordance with truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Now, I want you to reflect. Did you all not get those two slides I sent them to both of you this morning. Oh, okay. It came in on Gmail. Anyhow. Yeah, this morning. It may be there. It's okay if it isn't. But what I want us to think about here for a moment is this verse has been used by people to teach a doctrine of two kingdoms. Two kingdoms. And what I want you to understand is there are not two separate kingdoms, God's kingdom and the world. Rather, there are two kingdoms, Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. And both, there we go, both of those kingdoms, both of those kingdoms affect every sphere of life. Now now look at what look at what Jesus says. They flattered him. Verse seventeen. Tell us then what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What you're about to read is a verse profoundly used by Satan to teach people that politics and government are none of God's business. And, and we're going to see why it's wrong. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, he knew their evil intent. What was their intent? If he said, yes, it's okay, then he would have lost influence with the people that he's trying to reach with the gospel. Because the Roman government was Illegal. But authorized by God, nonetheless, to punish God's people for their sins. So he can't say, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, an occupying government, a wicked government. Neither can he say it's wrong. Because if he says it's wrong, he's going to be tried for treason. So notice what Jesus says. Knowing their evil intent, verse 18, he said, You hypocrites! Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax, verse 19. Now this is interesting. The Jews regarded the coins as idols. This is very important. Why did they regard those coins as idols? Because those coins had the image of an idol on them. In Jesus' day, the image is of Tiberius. Tiberius lists himself as the son of the divine Augustus, Caesar Augustus, or Octavian. Because the Romans, when Octavian won at the battle of Actium against Mark Anthony, and became the emperor of Rome... He declares himself a god. And so the Romans worshipped their emperors as gods. And their coins had a stamp with the image of the Roman emperor on it. And therefore the Jews regarded those coins as idolatrous. I happen to have a particular coin. I don't, I, I, it's just part of a little coin collection. But anyhow, the Jews regarded it as unclean. So notice how Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of his questioners. He said, why are you trying to uh, trap me? Verse 19, show me the tax, the the coin. They brought him with denarius, and he asked, whose fortress is this, and whose inscription? Now here's the first thing. Whoever had that coin was having idols in his pocket to start with so he exposes their hypocrisy right there and then he 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 said they said caesar's then he said to them give to caesar what is caesar's and to god what's god's now notice their amazement in verse 22 when they heard this they were amazed so they left him and went away he trapped them in their own hypocrisy this is what i want you to see This verse does not teach a separation of church and state. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was teaching here that the things that have to do with government have nothing to do with God at all? Of course not. Of course not. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's not an elaborate explanation of civil authority, and church authority. That's the great error. And we see that great error ensconced in popular thinking. I want you to look at the where does the expression separation of church and state come from. In 1802, the President of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, had been asked questions by a group of Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut. And basically he's telling them, mind your own business. And he writes to them and says that the purpose of the First Amendment was to build a wall of separation between church and state. That's what he said to them in a letter. But Hold on. Thomas Jefferson's phrase in 1802 must be understood in light of what he said in his second inaugural address in 1803. There is a wall of separation in the Constitution of the United States, but the wall of separation is not between church and state. Why would you say the church and state and not the church and not the synagogue in the state or the mosque in the state or the temple in the state? He's simply responding in a private letter. Mind your own business. What is the wall of separation in the First Amendment? Now, notice what Thomas Jefferson says in his very public second inaugural address, correcting the misunderstanding of what he said in his private letter. In matters of religion... I have considered that its free exercise is placed by the Constitution independent of the powers of the general government. What is the wall of separation in the Constitution? It is between the national Constitution and the constitutions of the individual states. That's the wall of separation. It's very important to understand that and that those powers that are not delegated specifically to the national, the country nationally are reserved to the people and to the states. Now notice what he says. I have therefore undertaken on no occasion to prescribe the religious exercises suited to it, but have left them, now notice those bold-faced words, as the Constitution found them under the direction and discipline of the church or state authorities acknowledged by the several religious societies. Do you see what he said? Jefferson believed there was a wall of separation in our national constitution. It was between the federal government and the individual uh, constitutions of the individual states. That's the wall of separation. Why is this important? Because this cockamamie idea has been used by Satan to destroy our society. Now... I hope you've got that down because we want to look at the next slide. The same year that the United States Congress sent down for ratification the Constitution, it passed the Northwest Ordinance. Now that's pretty blurry, uh, hard for me to read, but I'm going to simply say this. As we go down and you look at the bull-faced part, what was the Northwest Ordinance? It was once the United States won its independence from Great Britain. They inherited land that had been not part of the original 13 colonies because when England defeated France uh, in what we call the French and Indian War, All of these territories came to be then eventually part of the United States. That's what's referred to as the Northwest. And so now the Congress of the United States, in the same year that it's sending down the Constitution for ratification, passes the Northwest Ordinance. And what does it have to do with? How are we going to govern places like Ohio and Indiana? How are we going to govern them? Notice what I boldface there. Religion, morality, and knowledge being essential, being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. Do you see that? Do you see that the federal government, in passing the Northwest Ordinance, is saying that you can never separate God and religion from education. They're establishing public schools. And what is he saying? What are they saying there? What is the most important thing taught in a public school? Think of the order. What is the most important thing as we read it there in that statement in the Northwest Ordinance? Religion. Because everything flows out of your religious perspective. Religion. And, he sa- and so they say religion then establishes your morality. If you don't have a religion, you don't have a basis for morality. If there is no God, there's no right or wrong. Never forget that. If there is no God, there is no right or wrong. Religion is foundational to morality. And without morality then knowledge is essentially useless. It will only be used to a wicked purpose. Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. What happened in our country is this lie, Satan's lie, the God of this world, the one who rules in the affairs of men and nations in order to deceive and trick and take people down to hell. These things began to be ensconced. What you have is beginning actually in the 19th century. A man who rejected the biblical God, a man named Horace Mann, begins to establish a public school system run by the government of Massachusetts. And in the course of time, Horace Mann's views begin to come into that of most states. What happens when the federal government controls education? Since the U.S. Constitution leaves the matter of religion to the individual states and to the religious organizations, what happens is a new religion is established. Never forget this. Every single human being is devoutly religious. You will either worship the God of the Bible or you will worship yourself in one form or another. So looking back here, as we consider what Jesus is saying, he's saying there's there's really no thing that belongs to Caesar that God is indifferent about. God is God. He is the Lord of the world's. He's the creator of the entire universe. And there's not one square inch of any institution anywhere that God is not concerned with. And so here's the bottom line of all of this. We're thinking about two kingdoms, not the worldly kingdom versus Christ's kingdom, not secular things, church, uh, the state versus the church. The point is that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And his desire, his will, is that every institution in life be influenced by his kingdom, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of truth, that is utterly contrary to the kingdom of darkness. I think it's profound when we really ponder it, turning back to the Gospel of Luke, and finally, Luke chapter 4. What's profound is this page 1595. What's profound is this? The moment that you say, hands off Jesus. Jesus said, okay, have it your way. You remember the Frank Sinatra song? I did it my way. What happens when we do it our way? We have no foundation for morality. Truth becomes irrelevant and therefore knowledge is only used and abused to evil purposes. Look at the temptation here that Satan offers to Jesus. Page 1595. First of all, you can look, and we'll look next week at verse 3, about turning the stones into bread. And then you can see the last temptation here, where he tempts Jesus to tempt God. He's casting a glamour because he wants Jesus to choose to violate God's timing, to violate God's word with desire, and to be arrogant. I want to submit this in closing. The temptations that Satan offers Jesus... Or a reflection of the the temptations that he himself yielded to. He was a murderer. He was a liar. And he was bloated with pride. And this is the thought I leave you with. Anyone who is proud is insecure and full of fear. Anyone who is proud is insecure and full of fear. Do you mean to tell me, Bob, that Satan is full of fear? Yes. Satan is afraid. Satan is afraid. Satan is afraid because he knows he's doomed. Because he knows he's damned. Because he knows that his ultimate destiny is nothing less than to burn forever and ever and ever in the lake of fire. He knows that. What's amazing is this, this fool. And we have to say the devil is a fool. This fool is so consumed with his glamour, what he sees is his desire, I've got to have this no matter what, that he comes down to earth when he's cast out of heaven, continuing on his rampage because he knows his time is short. In other words, his lusts, his desires, his pride, He knows his end is coming regardless, but he can't let go of him. He's like a heroin addict, addicted to power, addicted to pleasure, addicted to vanity about himself, and addicted to his lying ways. And you see that in this. Satan basically tempts you and me with fear. But Satan himself is afraid because he's insecure. Look behind every strutting politician. Look behind anyone who ever boasts about himself. I did that, I did that, I did that. And what you see is a person who is profoundly insecure because he knows better. And therefore he puts on a bravado and a mask. Satan doesn't. Bravado and mask. I can give you all this. If you just worship me. And we see something else there with Satan. Satan delights to humiliate. What's he asking Jesus to do? Bow down and worship me. He wants Jesus to be humiliated before him. Anytime you see a political leader who delights in making fun of people, who delights in putting people down, who delights in taking credit for what other people have done. You're looking at a demonically empowered man! Never forget it. God's desire is that the kingdom of God intrude your home, your marriage, your child raising, your job, the workplace, your church, and the state. But Satan is still busy constantly crafting and putting up a glamour because those glamours aren't real. It'll never give you what you're looking for. And deep down inside Satan, pathetic creature that he is, Satan knows that he fell for his own con. Wow. Wow. So my closing words to you are this, as we think about God and government. There's no sphere of life where Jesus Christ does not say, mine. And in your own life, beware of the glamour. Because the greatest lie about marriage is, when I fall in love, it'll be forever. I've listened to and prayed with, I don't know, I've lost track in all the years since I first was licensed to preach in 1965. So many people. And suddenly one day, they fell in love with somebody. Like Amnon, falling in love with his half-sister Tamar. But then, when the glamour's gone, the hideousness of it, oh my. Commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Don't fear what's going on in our country. Pray for it. For your marriage is the most important thing. Your family, your children, your grandchildren. Hold on to God's commandments, to his words. Be faithful to him. No matter what emotions you may feel. I can say this from dealing with so many people where I've seen it come true. No matter how bad a marriage, no matter how empty a marriage God can breathe life back into it again. There's always hope. Because when the glamour is gone, and you look in the mirror, and you see the decaying corpse in the shining, and you think, I chose that. May we pray. Lord, would you bless us and pity us. Would you shine on us with your face as we continue this sermon according to your will next Lord's Day. God and government, Lord, you want to be very much involved in our political systems, in our educational system, in our homes, in our churches. Lord, grant me so, and above all, grant, O oh God, that we may follow the words of Solomon in Proverbs 4. My son, give me your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. Once again, Lord, we lift our hands to you, With a heart aflame of dedication to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.